Welcome to the Marshall Proof Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A coming to you at 7.34 p.m. on a Thursday evening, August the 25th. Uh, I'm failing, y'all. Genuinely failing. I think we were kind of, sort of, on time last week. I think the week before, not at all. And I said last week, yeah, we're going to be back on track. Everything's going to be great. And it's almost Friday. So you're probably listening to this on a Friday. So I apologize. I think I have a good excuse. Maybe. Uh, pretty flat out last week, spent uh, many, many days in Monterey at the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion Vintage Event, which I cover every year. Dispatched there originally by Speed and then since 2013 with Racer Magazine. So it uh, doesn't matter whether there's an IndyCar conflict, IMSA conflict, whatever. Uh, that is where they have me go and cover. That's what I did. Loved it. And it was amazing. Uh, met a lot of folks. Uh, ran into a lot of friends. It was a wonderful time. And I'll come back to that in just a sec. But coming home, uh, then went straight into what's been now about four straight days of magazine work so yes uh having to put a lot of racing reporting and writing aside all to focus on magazine assignments and i'm a really happy 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 boy uh the main magazine feature which uh worked on that'll be out i think middle early next month something like that uh for racer magazine uh, writing about a particular chassis that I absolutely loved and its time in the Kart IndyCar series. So, had an amazing time speaking with a lot of folks about the cars built by the manufacturer. And so, yeah, that's where my head's been stuck in for the almost entirety of this week. That's why I'm just starting to record here uh, dinner time effectively on a Thursday night. So, hey, how you doing? I hope you're well. I really do. Uh, we had a IndyCar race last weekend, and I caught as much of the action as I could while in Monterey, watched stuff back, spoke with a lot of folks this week. Once I got the magazine bits mostly done, uh, late morning today, a little bit yesterday, but mostly this afternoon, oh, I have been on the phone with <laughs> a heck of a bunch of people from the IndyCar paddock, whether it is drivers, team managers, team owners, uh, engineers, mechanics on down. There's a lot going on, my friends. Uh, a lot of silly season stuff that is brewing a crazy amount for where we are at this stage of the season. Like this should almost just be kind of really boring. All right, got one or two little things, boxes to tick off. Oh, no. Uh, so, doing my best to get this wound up, confirmed with multiple sources, wherever I only have one source, places where I have two or three, depending on how crazy it is. Uh, I don't know, get four or five. Uh, fun stuff. I love the hunt. I love the chase involved with reporting. And so, yeah, hopefully here very soon, I will have another Silly Season update for you. I know some folks have been posting some things uh, about that silly season stuff. And from what I've read and seen, mostly, I think, pretty much exclusively through social media, 
A lot of it's spot on. Some of it, though, uh, is spot off a thing, right? You say spot on when it's right. Do you say spot off when it's not? I don't know, but we will hear. Anyways, I'll try and set as much straight that needs straightening and then certainly confirm all the things that I've been hearing that other folks have been hearing and maybe had time recently to put into stories or tweets or whatever they've done. Uh, come back real quickly to last weekend. <sighs> Got a chance for the first time in 20 plus years to see a woman who's instrumental to my life and career by the name of Maggie Smith Haas, championship winning driver, mentioned her recently, I believe, a championship winning driver who I worked for, uh, worked on her car the year that she won her uh, SCCA Pro Racing Championship. Dane Cameron's dad, Ricky, was also a mechanic on that team. So Ricky and I were young mechanics together. Uh, got to see Margie, gave her a giant hug, was able to spend some time with her. And even though she only had like 10 or 15 minutes, able to capture a brief podcast, just showering love upon her. So we'll get that posted here soon. Spent some time with a, a gentleman by the name of Alan Berg. His son, Alex, is now getting into uh, F4 and whatnot, junior open-wheel racing. Been wanting to interview Alan for a long, long time. To many, his name might be familiar because of the Allen Berg Racing School that he owns. Been a lot of drivers over the year who've gone through Allen's school and learned good things and have gone on to big things in motor racing. I wanted to talk to Alan mostly about his half-season in Formula One. And so we did. Uh, he's kind of the world's forgotten Canadian Formula One driver. So had a really good time doing that. Also, unrelated to IndyCar, but did get a chance to get the head of IMSA, North America's biggest sports car series, and Pierre Fion, the head of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the ACO, probably the most powerful uh, person in the world of sports car racing outside of the U.S., got them together, did a podcast, uh, hopefully get that put out sometime soon. That was fun. Met up with our man, Jer Hildebrand, who kind of impromptu was able to dive into a super zillion dollar Ferrari and race that. And so did a little bit of in-car with him, which was fun. Uh, spent some time with my friend, Greg Kiwi Martin. He and I were roommates on the road in 1999 when we worked for the Hogan cart IndyCar series team. Greg was a mechanic. I was a support engineer. Um, and yeah, uh, great to spend some time with Kiwi and on and on and on and on. Saw so many people, Ellen Barley. She was with the IMS museum for a number of years. Amazing curator, uh, who helped put on some of the great displays of vehicles that we saw last weekend. So, uh, boy, just on down the line, Lynn St. James got to see Lynn, uh, Tom Christensen and blah, 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 blah. Um, just awesome. Uh, just truly a, a life replenishing event. So I've got so many things, so many pieces of video, whether it's vehicle tours and technical walkarounds and in-car videos, all things that, uh, I captured. And then since I've been in magazine mode, I haven't been able to get to, but I'll get to those here very, very soon. 
Uh, last item or two for you, then we're going to rock and roll with your Q and A. Huge thank you to you, all of you, for the questions that you send in every week. Uh, <laughs> trying to think how to say this uh, nicely. So every week, I spend minimum three hours, usually sometimes four. Four is about normal, and sometimes five hours could go higher than that answering questions do this here voluntarily and happily with the week in indycar listener q a show love it love it also have the racer mailbag yeah lots of questions there i wish more of those who submitted questions for the mailbag listen to the podcast to hear the quality of questions y'all send in. (laughs) So maybe some of the quality would rub off with what gets sent in for the mailbag. Uh, So uh, that's just a nice way of saying on a weekly basis, I'm reminded of how special y'all are uh, because what you send in here. 99% 99% of the time I enjoy, it's fun, it's interesting, it's thought-provoking, and I don't want to give you a percentage uh, on the mailbag, but uh, y'all are many laps up and win that race every week. I'll just put it that way. Also do our, our weekend sports car show, which is driven by listener questions as well. So I don't know how we got here, y'all. Somehow, no joke, I, I guess combined at least half of one day put it all together, at least half of one day, sometimes almost one full day per week, I spend answering questions, either by typing them out with answers or speaking into a microphone. And so, yeah, just weird. Used to just be a podcast here. But anyways, thank you. That's what I'm getting at. Thank you all for rocking. Uh, Let's say a big thanks as well to Jerry Siddoth, who puts the questions together for me. Uh, not only culls the questions from all that come in, but then chooses uh, what gets used, the order that they're used to try and create a good flow for the show. It's an art, and I'm so thankful to him. Jim Kaiser, who did this before, kind of coached Jerry up. Jerry's now taking this on in his own direction. And before him, Tim Falkowitz. So thanks to uh, many of you members of the Day or just good fine listeners who have jumped in to help Say, obviously, a huge thanks to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, all of whom have been with the show pretty much since the beginning or close to the beginning. Um, Crazy to think that, what are we now, year six of the show? Something like that? I don't know. Uh, Six or six, I think. Seven? Six? Something like that. Uh, But, yeah, we're continuing to motor on had a conversation with someone earlier this week who wants to join in as a potential sponsor of the show. This would be the second conversation that we have had. So uh, I think that might end up happening. And if so, it'd be really cool. Um, Not that I am out looking for more. Uh, This actually came in as a inquiry, but I'm super happy with who we have. I'm not really looking to vastly expand and add three four five more not at all but uh if this works i think it'd just be a nice fit actually a perfect fit for uh, all of us 
and what we love in racing. Um, last thing I've mentioned recently, got a cool new thing that should be happening. And since you are probably listening to this on a Friday or Saturday, hopefully you're reading it. Um, got an outreach from ESPN about a month ago. Yeah, maybe a month ago, maybe five, six, whatever it is. Uh, outreach from ESPN saying, hey, uh, Formula One, that's, that's our thing with racing, and we cover NASCAR pretty heavily, but like to start doing some IndyCar stuff. And so it's not going to be a high volume by any means. Uh, could be one or two columns a month. We'll see again, just kind of, there was a, a outreach and a, Hey, uh, we'd like to do something. And this is a space we, we feel a need to start filling. And so hopefully you'll be reading that first column, uh, around the time you're listening to this and hopefully that continues and goes well. I can tell you it smacked me upside the head and was like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's an honor. Uh, nothing else is changing with racer or road and track in terms of my regular client work. So that's all just perfectly normal, but yeah. Uh, so hopefully it's not just one done. Hopefully you don't, uh, come back and say, Hey, thanks. Uh, you suck. Goodbye. Always a possibility, but anyways, so yeah, how cool, right? Uh, I've been watching ESPN for 35 years. I don't know how long. Um, so yeah, hopefully that will develop into something. Uh, I'll share that link whenever the story goes up and why don't we get rocking and rolling here? Jerry, once more, thank you for what you do. And also how about a little bit of music bed as we traditionally do to kick off the show? Uh, Kevin DeVries, you say MP, not since the late nineties and early two thousands. Have we seen a driver with a gift to sing his way to the front? Is young Mr. David Malukas, is he Joe Tonto incarnate? Uh, has he even seen Mr. Tonto's biopic referring to the greatest worst racing movie ever made, Driven? Uh, you know, I spoke with Malukas this week on our hashtag racing family show on Monday on the good old Twitter spaces. I never, I, I, it never occurred to me to ask him about that. So Kev, you're way ahead. Uh, seeing as how David might weigh as much as Joe Tonto's right thigh. Yeah, uh, I think we need to get him into the weight room a little bit, like I'm one to speak. But yeah, uh, the singing part, sure. Anything else related to Joe Tonto? Um, I'm struggling to see the parallel, brother. But why don't we get him bulked up? Why don't we get him just gulping protein powder and eating raw eggs and doing some really gross bodybuilding type things to, to just add 50 pounds of muscle. Let, let's get all the veins on his neck popping out Stallone style and then just roast him. Do some, the fake tanning as well. Let's get him like full Joe Tonto. Uh, I don't know if he's got that kind of grunt drawl possibility in terms of, of speaking, but there's some coaching opportunities here. Uh, and I'm going to see him on Monday when he and many other drivers are at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca for a pre-event test. So maybe, provided he even knows who the heck Joe Tonto is, 
I can get him to try and do an end of day video as Joe Tonto, I have dreams. I don't know if it will happen. Andy Bauer, say Marshall, best to you and your wife. Gateway seemed to have better action than in years past. Did the rubbering in session really help with that? He says, if so, does Will Power, a big supporter and perhaps originator of that idea, have a future in race control when he retires? He says, can you think of a current driver better suited to be chief steward than DJ Willie P? Double birds and all. Um, he would quit after one race. So, yeah. Let's not do that to him, Andy. Uh, patience is not a virtue I would assign to uh, young Mr. William Power. He knows a lot of words in the English language. Many of those words not being ones you would want to have said to you. So, uh, yeah, will using letters, words that start with the letter F and C and P and D. I'm trying to think what else. Many of those four-letter words. Um, yes, I could see Will getting fired because he a W, uh, he'd use that as well, anchor. Um, I could see Will just doing a verbal double bird on any offenders uh even just folks making dumb mistakes like there's an old robin harris one of my favorite comedians passed in the 90s unfortunately but uh he always he had this one great joke about uh executioners and you know it's hard to find executioners long story short uh he was just like nope i'll do everything death just execute everybody like i just kill all of them let me go um that would be the willpower of race control like hey you spun on your own death (laughs) permanent ban uh just draconian punishment i could see him doing that and laughing hysterically especially if he were to retire soon and get that role and just it'd be the full payback grant it'd last one event like he, he would show up at St. Pete wearing his official IndyCar polos and whatever else after the race, NBC would be there with a camera person as they yank any IndyCar branded clothing off of will and push him. Uh, I, I don't know why I picture him wearing just a white, um, t-shirt or something like that. Uh, just pushing him out of race control, kicking him out and locking the door behind him. That's what I envision. So yeah, let's just not put him through that. As for the rubbering in, uh, was, was happy to see as much use of the second ish lane as we did one and a half lanes, maybe two at times by the brave. Did the rubbering in really help? No, because of the rain without the rain, I think we would have seen far more uh, side-by-side type stuff going on and just more aggressive use of, uh, switching lanes high or low to try and make passes happen earlier, uh, on corner exit. Uh, let's see, let's go to our pal, Jim Kaiser. First got to know Jim here through his weekly haiku. He says a haiku return. Those footsteps you hear come from Joseph Newgarden. It's his crown to win. Look at that. Jim Kaiser calling 
his shot. <sighs> Gotta admit, buddy, uh, Joseph Newgarden has competed in 15 motor races this year. Uh, he has won five of them. The last time a driver won one third of all the IndyCar races, uh, yeah, I'd have to look, but oh, this does not happen very often throughout history. Uh, it has happened, you know, there, I'm sure there's been an even higher percentage by some drivers on occasion. I'm just saying, this is rarefied air. Knowing the charge that he's been on, uh, if he is not crowned champion, I will be surprised. Something dramatic will have happened at Portland. A power, a Dixon, a whomever getting taken out, uh, something breaking, something blunt, whatever. A strategery error. Um, if Joseph does not continue this surge all the way to winning his third championship, I'll be genuinely shocked. Would love to see Will win this for his sake. Done a lot of IndyCar seasons, come close many times, pooped the bed on others. Him being able to retire as, at minimum, a two-time champion, I would love that for him. I do believe, he won't say it, no, you know, that's fine, but I do believe this would be true validation of willpower as a complete race car driver. He's won the Indy 500, that's amazing. Many people have won the Indy 500. Uh, many of them folks who've never won a championship and have no ability to win a championship. Will captured one title in 2014, was runner-up or runner-up-ish many times, faded a little bit at times. Um, he gets that second championship. He retires, and I think we all say without a doubt, yes, Will wasn't just a one-and-done guy who was able to sneak in a title there but never able to come back to that form. Uh, this would be meaningful. If Joseph were to not win the title this year, I'd feel bad for him knowing, good Lord, how hard he's been pushing, how much he's been achieving. I would also have no worries about him adding a third next year and a fourth after that. So window is closing for Will. Zero question on that being a fact. Joseph, by no means at all. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you, Jim. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to Eric Franklin? How you doing, Eric? He says, The 40-lap shootout for the win was spectacular. Malukas certainly turned a lot more heads with his charge to the podium at the end. My question is, what can be done to race lengths uh, that can take the fuel saving uh, away? He says, Strategy on a road course? Fine. But on an oval, we want to see, to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, as uh, shown in Talladega Nights, hot, nasty, badass speed. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. That was, I think there was a, I don't know if there's a question coming later that I might have seen, or if this was something in the mailbag that maybe I deleted. But uh, there was someone who mentioned something similar, Eric, but it was it was really driven towards the fuel-saving side uh, without so much pointing that way key item out asking what was up with the middle of the race right like that just sucked <laughs> nobody nobody could pass nobody uh it was just a follow the leader fest and so and so came up on this back marker and they just sat there couldn't get by i, I don't know if it was so much couldn't as it was hey 
the majority of us are just being light on the throttle pedal and trying to save fuel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm with you. Um, this might be heresy. It probably is heresy. If we're looking at a, a scenario where we might go for a long stint or maybe even two long stints or one and a half where it's truly just farting around doing nothing more than trying to save fuel because we haven't had uh, cautions to break things up and create some real alternate fuel and tire strategies to give us some excitement like Malukas at the end being on fresher tires and charging forward. I'm all good with a competition caution if that's what it takes. Now, do you announce that as a competition caution or oh, there's debris on, on the back stretch, right? That, that's NASCAR hasn't done it, hasn't had to do that for a while, but that used to be NASCAR's old thing of, you know, an 8,000 mile long race that takes 12 years to finish and hey, it gets a little boring and oh, hey, you know, famous stories about, you know, real back in the day of, you know, France family member, uh, standing out near trackside and taking off their watch and dropping the watch on the ground and going up oh, debris caution just to pack things up and bring some spice. I know this, this goes against my purity of competition thing that I love. And I'm always spouting about, but I'm with you here and I don't disagree. And if we do find ourselves in those situations, um, maybe I need to just, express that again to uh, our pal Jay Fry. Hey, if this is getting a little sucky, you know, uh, hey, I, I can, look, I can find debris anywhere. Give me some binoculars. It might be an oversized pebble that is 20 feet from the racing line. I can find it if you need. Um, let's, let's make fuel saving not a thing. Let's make fuel burning a thing. So I'm with you. Uh, where are we going next? Vincent 1701. Thank you, by the way, Vincent. I saw a flurry, your usual flurry of questions that came in. Forgetting the silly season and lawsuits, what should we, the fans, be looking for in these last few races? Couple of things for sure. So, although the trend hasn't fully happened yet, we should shed two, maybe three championship contenders by the time we leave Portland. We know that over the last two races, there are 108 total points available, 54 maximum uh, to any driver at Portland and then again at Laguna. From a strictly mathematical standpoint, uh, any driver that is beyond... 54 points from the leader will no longer be eligible uh, at the end of the Portland race to win the championship. So we know that part. There's also a practicality standpoint of, hey, you don't have to be 55 points out to be out of the championship. You can be 35. You can be 40. You can be 27. Still... Again, mathematically eligible, but from a practicality standpoint, eh, ain't happening because the one thing we have seen, Vincent, that's been so unique about this season that has given us this amazing stat 
of going into the last two races, the tightest grouping of drivers in the points standings in 19 years, right? What is it, like 58 points? Uh, Pato, I think, is 58 points back or whatever the exact number is. But just this um, crazy tight grouping. Uh, Joseph is only three points behind Power. Uh, Dixon's only, I think, 14 points behind. Erickson's 17 back. The top four are really the ones who are in the closest hunt. Uh, back from there, Pelo, I think, is like 43-ish in fifth. Uh, McLaughlin, I think, is 54, 50, whatever it is. And then Pato, I think, is 58. But whatever the exact numbers are, Power, Newgarden, Dixon, Erickson. That's the real cluster of drivers who seem to never really be far from each other at the finish in recent rounds. Big thing that I saw that I just found interesting, right? So Joseph, who was what? I believe fourth after Nashville, right? Uh, Juan Gateway moved from fourth I believe, to th- second in the championship, gained 19. 19 points was what he gained uh, to move himself from fourth to second. That's what I'm looking at, honestly, Vincent, in terms of like, hey, it's not like Joseph was way, way out of the championship beforehand or before uh, Gateway, but to think that he went from fourth to second and gain 19 points on the leader well okay so that tells me if pato wins at portland certainly capable yeah he's way back right now how far would that get him though knowing how the folks who are still contending for the championship mclaughlin and polo and all the you know they don't tend to fall way way back and get a small handful of points so that's something really to watch Okay, do the ones who are 5th, 6th, 7th in the standings, a little bit remote once you get to 6th and 7th, are they able to have amazing days? Because that's what they need. So if you're looking at who might come out of Portland and go into the final race with a real chance, it is a case where Polo, McLaughlin, O'Ward, those three need to be standing on the podium if they want to have a realistic hope of vying for the championship in Monterey. Kind of, sort of, anything less than that, they're out. Even if it's not a mathematic disqualification, we just don't have many races uh, towards the end of the season here where Dixon's 20th, New Garden's 18th, Powers 21st, and some of those who I mentioned who are towards the bottom of the championship scramble have a big opportunity to make a huge leap because the main contenders have fallen off so that's something to watch fourth i'm sorry fifth through seventh it it's pretty much a win or second place or farewell what would be interesting to see here among the true leaders of the championship that top four that i mentioned who are within 17 points of one another I mentioned Joseph improved 19 points to go to th- second. Let's say Erickson wins. 
could he do a similar thing? Could he come out in first place? Absolutely. But first place by what? <laughs> Two, three points, five? I don't know. Um, unless power wins. Unless New Garden win. Those are really the only two that I can see Vincent going into the penultimate round where they could have a, a bit of a breakaway from the pack. It wouldn't be crazy amount of a breakaway, but really, if either of those Penske drivers happen to win, uh, not this Sunday, but next, that's really the only opportunity I see among the remaining title contenders to go into Monterey with a little bit of breathing room. Anything other than that, right? It's just going to be an even tighter cluster. Let's say Palo, winner last year, wins again. Great for him. Thrust forward. Again, would he be second in the championship after that third? I don't know. But thrust forward in the championship be great for him. But what would that mean? Those who are towards the front are not getting the biggest helping of points. So <laughs> what I'm hoping for, Vincent, uh, I'm hoping a Polo McLaughlin or award type victory happens. We actually draw closer going into the final race, right? So those who are outside right now who are outside the top four actually are tighter in the standings. And Laguna Seca, becomes a true nail-biting acid reflux Grand Prix because three, four, five drivers are so darn close in the points that we're going to have to get to the end of this race to really know who the champion's going to be. That's my hope. That's what I'm looking for. After that, let's not discount the possibility of spoilers, right? Andretti Autosport has nothing to play for in the championship, could Alexander Rossi or Colton Herta stick their cars on pole and win the race? Absolutely could. And then <laughs> this actually makes the championship even crazier because the biggest helping of points went to someone who truly doesn't need it. So all those who are in title contention got smaller helpings, and in theory, no real separation there. Uh, how about a Felix Rosenquist? Can he go and win this race? He absolutely can. Uh, I, that'd be amazing for him. Um, run down the list. There, there are some others who could certainly feature here. So there's all that. Last thing I'll mention, just things to look for. This is the obvious part about Portland for those who've watched races at Portland or been fortunate enough to be there to watch the races. Uh, yeah, turn one chicane kerblamo fests we tend to have a lot of dumb things happen at the start of the race and then on subsequent restarts adversity in ways that we rarely see at laguna seca for example uh driver-based dumbness and over ambition we don't see a lot of taking out one another at laguna with that kind of behavior we could if things are really tight and scrappy in the standings but portland yes we do indeed see this there are three main spots where somebody's sticking their nose down the inside hoping the other person sees 
but they probably didn't see uh, that happens a lot at Portland. So just be mindful of the fact that everything I mentioned about who could win and how they could move and how they could strengthen their championship, whatever, that could all be completely abandoned for just random ass running into one another and drivers in the championship hunt being more or less screwed through no real fault of their own. Uh, what else can we, what else should we talk about here? Where else should we go in our show? Hey, that rhymes. Um, Neil Clark says, Hey Marshall, after another unscheduled engine change this week, you seem to be adding up recently. Is it just because we were near the end of the season or maybe I just missed it before, but I seem to remember hearing about this happening the past few years. Uh, I don't have the data in front of me, Neil, to give you a uh, full analysis of yay or nay on your last point, but I will mention that I do agree with you. Um, I don't recall there being as many towards the end of last season, maybe even the season before. I know part of this was some rule changes, some tweaks by the series, some of it at the urging of the manufacturers, where get towards the end of the season, got a couple of drivers who are your, your main ponies in this race, and, hey, uh, we would rather make sure you have our latest and greatest engine, all of our developments, the most power, the most torque, the greatest fuel set, just everything that's the best. We'd rather go into the last round or two with something that is totally fresh and we'll tr take the hit in terms of the grid penalty if necessary, assuming that we've breached and gone beyond the four allowable engine changes for the season. We will take that hit on purpose knowing that we can erase fears of engine failures because this engine being towards the end of its mileage life, uh, we can do that. Plus again, know that we have the latest, greatest, fastest, hottest, and so on. If I'm trying to do a bit of strategery, I'm trying to make that change going into the gateway race. So uh, if I am able to get that grid penalty and serve it on the oval, like, hey, cool, Me that's meaningless on an oval. Truly, it's meaningless unless your car is just set up terribly. Um, having to deal with a six-spot grid penalty or whatever it is at Portland, maybe not optimal. But coming back to the, boy, they sure do seem to have a bunch of yellows with uh, folks running into one another. Lots of options to try and get those spots back. But yeah, there was a bit of a concerted effort to say, you know what, we want to tweak things a little bit and, and get y'all away. Y'all complain about the costs. Everything's way too expensive with engine supply and you lose money. We, we, you... We hear that all the time. We don't disagree. We hear your complaints. But then you get to the end of the season and decide to spend a lot more money voluntarily by chucking these fresh new motors into all of your contenders on either side to give yourselves the best chances of winning the championship. So that's a conflict. So we're going to really try and to stop doing that. This year, we've seen between the two manufacturers, I think last episode i did a little bit of a readout here neil uh but we i did see that there were a lot of chevy runners who were on their third engines not their fourth 
And so could they be going to a fourth here very soon uh, without penalty? I would imagine so. Honda side, there seemed to be a lot of folks who were on four or already on five. And so making that change going into a Portland or a Laguna would seemingly have a lot of uh, a lot of Honda power drivers starting a little bit farther back in the field than they wanted. So I'm with you though. This does seem like it's cropped up a little bit. And if I remember, I will ask Jay Fry about it. Uh, let's see, Keith Lee. Uh, you got a question here that, boy, I sure wish I had an answer to. Uh, asking about what uh, what's up with the attendance last weekend at Gateway, also known as Worldwide Technology Raceway. Um, I need to ask, uh, was it rain? Was it not rain? I don't know. But, yeah, uh, wasn't there. So all I could do is go by what they showed on the good old TV and those grandstands did not look uh, overly prescribed, and that really made me sad. You asked, did NASCAR, and NASCAR's turning up this year for their first race um, in, I think, forever? Did that cannibalize some of the fans? I don't know, but I can tell you it worried me. It really did worry me looking at uh, how light the audience was compared to recent years. I'll also say that uh, I believe last year was the very same Monterey conflict with uh, Gateway, so I wasn't there. But uh, last year's crowd, I recall looking a little bit light to me as well. And so this year was a marked drop compared to last year, just eyeball tests. So I don't know what the answer is, but that's yet again something that... Uh, Hopefully can maybe speak to the track about, and that seems like it's worthy of doing a story here as soon as I'm able. Um, Robbie Bergren, you say, Marshall, I'm still praying for you and your wife. Thanks, Robbie. That, that's, man, that's really sweet. It really, really is. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you say, do you think Dave Malukas is developing faster than Kyle Kirkwood, or is the difference in performance down to Better engineering from Dale Coin Racing. You also say to give the cats a little rub. I will. Rocky was just sleeping in the window here, but it's getting dark so and colder, so he wants to go somewhere and be warm. I couldn't argue with you here at all. Robbie spoke with David's race engineer, the super talented Ross Bunnell, and Fast learning curve is exactly the thing that Ross pointed to as a main attribute of David's rise and progress this year. I think Kirk Kirkwood, as we'd love to call him, I think Kirk came in at a higher level. What I think has been weird is Kirk's decision-making more in race day than anything else just been been off i would say it's been some desperation some some hey i'm gonna try this i'm gonna go here i'm gonna stick it down there and uh just from the outside not things we've seen him do before not things where we go oh boy yeah he's prone to that it's been the opposite so i know i've, I've mentioned that observation before here robbie but uh, positioned against Malukas, yeah, I gotta gotta agree. 
Is part of the problem with Kirk the fact that he's only ever been accustomed to running up front and been winning and just kicking ass for the last many years? And now in the smallest slash lowest performing team on the grid, are we seeing frustration and desperation come out because he's not familiar with running 22nd all the time or 19th or whatever? And even though there's no reason to try and pull off a pass for 21st, a risky pass for 21st, is it just his competitive spirit flaring up? saying to heck with this uh i'm gonna try it anyways because i just i'm not built to accept farting around at the back on the days where they're off on setup i bet there might be something to that engineering wise no doubt that the coin team has been a a step ahead if not two or three steps ahead of foyt all year long but there's also been events where we've seen good old kirk uh, do super well be fairly quick coming off of the trailer um he is an engine he and his engineer mike colliver very good tandem um i don't know I, I do wonder if frustration is just been the thing that has torn kirk down way too many times this season we saw some early glimpses of like whoa look at that from kirkwood since then haven't really seen much of that malukas made a lot of mistakes to start the season but started to get it started to figure it out and by and large the guy's been really impressive since then thing i'm looking for in moving to andretti autosport where we know from an engineering standpoint they're leagues ahead Will we just see a more settled Kirk Kirkwood? Him being quick and testing and what? I don't care about any of that. I expect him to be fast in all those scenarios. I'm talking about between the green flag and the checkered flag. What kind of decision-making are you applying to your craft? Can we hopefully say 2022 is a fluke in that regard and he's just back to being fast and dominant-ish uh, once he's in a Andretti car. Um, I hope that's the case because if it's not, and if he's hitting everything but the pace car next year or doing solo crashes and spins and whatever all the time, that's going to be problematic. Uh, that is going to be problematic for the Andretti team, no doubt. Uh, Mitsuki Matsuri, you're asking if Devlin Francesco will stay with Andretti Autosport. Uh, I hope by the time you're listening to this on Friday, I will have a story up. Uh, I need to call one person tomorrow morning to get a quote. Assuming they provide a quote, I will then write me a word story that answers that. But I need to get one more thing uh, covered off on that before I am ready to talk about it. Um, Michael Mueller. Asking about, is the new million trillion square foot Andretti Autosport global headquarters a sign that their F1 entry efforts are gaining traction? Um, as I understand, and you mentioned that the size of the building at five, 
175,000 square feet. You mentioned is larger than the new 400,000 square foot Aston Martin F1 building. Um, you're asking, wondering, does this tip their hand that something's going on there that could be positive F1? As I understand, the answer would be no. Uh, I need to ask a little bit about this too, a little bit more before I have the full picture, if I get the full picture. And that is, there's grand ambitions to have that facility and have the Andretti name become more of a global commodity, a global brand in the same way that a Ferrari is. And I don't just mean Ferrari Scuderia, Ferrari Formula One team, but just right global name, global brand. Uh, it is cars. It is racing teams. It is history. It is technology. It's special projects. It is cafeteria. It is <laughs> mugs and T-shirts and all, right? Uh, as I understand it, this ginormous, I don't fully grasp what you're going to do with all that space building is meant to be something that honestly is, is much bigger than just motor racing. Uh, more to follow, hopefully. Uh, Jeffrey May, as we start to wind down here a little bit, uh, you ask, oh, you also say uh, that I mentioned recently that my middle name is Jefferson. Uh, in the response to your last question, you say that was a very common nickname for me from my aunt, so I've always been fond of the name. It's funny, the only person who calls me Jefferson is my old buddy Matt Swan, uh, Elio's crew chief with their Indy 500 win last year and kind of shop uh, clown and raconteur uh, at Meyer Shank Racing. Um, he's a good guy, but if I don't give him grief, he'll think that I'm, I'm sick or something like that. Uh, Swanee is about the only person who calls me Jefferson, which uh, I love. Um, nobody, not a single person on the planet calls me Jeff, uh, or most would not know to because... The folks who knew me as Jeff, uh, I don't know, would have known me in high school. And yeah, I live nowhere near my old high school, nor do I really hang out with anybody from high school. So yeah. Uh, anyways, thanks for that mention there. Uh, Jeffrey, um, asking about Marcus Erickson. So you say you saw that he has scored the most points from ovals this year. And I have to admit, I was very surprised. Is that more of a double points thing from Indy or is it him being very underrated when it comes to ovals? Um, it's funny. I, I texted uh, Marcus after qualifying at Gateway. He was just like, hey, nice job, man. You know, P2, that, that's that's a impressive thing. And, uh, you know, he said thanks, but then also acknowledged being pissed because he really wanted to get his first oval pole. So I just mentioned that because I think that's the answer. I think this guy is remarkably good on ovals, way underrated. That Indy 500 win, not a fluke by any means. Quick at Iowa, quick at Texas, quick obviously at Gateway, even if the Ganassi team wasn't crazy fast in the race and didn't have an opportunity to do much with strategy to move forward. But this guy's crazy good on ovals. I, yeah, 
I think this is going to be a, a pillar of his annual performances. Uh, you factor in his natural skills on road and street courses. Maybe the biggest story, I don't know if big, we'll look back and see. Again, there's still time to go in the season, uh, so maybe there are other things that will be regarded as bigger. I'll just say for sure among the biggest stories of the year, Marcus Erickson becoming a complete IndyCar driver and complete threat at every single round. Just saying, when he rocked up in 2019, never, ever a thing any of us expected. Uh, I was going to say no disrespect to the guy. It's actual disrespect, but I would say valid or, or, you know, warranted disrespect no reason to believe this guy was going to be anything more than a road and street course guy of you know hey is he gonna be a top 12 finisher in the championship yeah probably 12th uh is he gonna get a podium every now and then yeah maybe but again road and street course attrition something like that uh has a rookie season with what we call aaron mclaren sp and it supported every single one of those beliefs. All right, well, you know, not, nothing special, nothing more from him than we anticipated. And yeah, uh, the guy moved to Ganassi, uh, had some folks who really started to believe in him, had some great resources put around him, and, you know, a couple of fourths, a couple of fifths, nothing crazy, but not a surprise to see him in the top 10 at a lot of the races and did well uh, on ovals as well. Get to 2021, and it's a bit of a surprise if he's not a top 10 guy. Got those pair of wins, uh, both street courses, but you also look at, you know, uh, Indy, what, he finished 10th or 11th. Um, Gateway, again, I think he was a top 10 type guy there. Um, Just showing us. And then this year, uh, what podium at Texas? Uh, I believe he did okay at the Indianapolis 500. A uh, couple of strong runs, strongish runs for a Ganassi team that again wasn't really ass kicking uh, at Iowa by any means. Um, but a couple of strong finishes there. Uh, qualifies obviously front row at Gateway. This is a guy in a year where Penske has, without a doubt, been a one step, one notch ahead uh, in terms of their overall competitiveness. In a year where Ganassi has been humbled a little bit, uh, this guy is showing that, holy cow, he is dang good. If the Ganassi team were to get back to at least equal with uh, Penske next year, like... (laughs) You know, the double points of Indy 500 are great, but we can't discount the rest of the guy's work. I think he comes into next year, which will be the final year of his contract with Ganassi. If Ganassi's able to just, again, a little bit more speed, more of a match for Penske at most of the races, I expect us to be talking about Marcus Erickson, the title contender, just period, moving forward. It's just statement of fact. And his performances on ovals, well spotted here, Jeff. Um, that's going to be a big factor as well. 
Um, where else am I going to go here as we get to the just about one hour mark? Are we over the hour mark? Let me see. We're almost at the hour mark. Let me grab one or two more here. Then I will say not only farewell, but then uh, hopefully go have dinner too. Fun times. Uh, let's see. Daniel Summersgill, who helps put together the questions uh, for our week in sports cars show that I record with my pal Graham Goodwin. Uh, you ask, how much longer do you see Ed Carpenter being an active driver in IndyCar? Uh, best result of 13th at Texas, 4th in qualifying for the Indy 500. Those are his highlights for the season. Does seem like he's been invisible for most events, uh, maybe due to car setup difficulties. Also says very nice things, wishing uh, the best for my wife and the cats. Oh, yeah. There has been one undeniably bad thing in Ed Carpenter Racing's shift to two full-time entries this season with Ed switching over to a part-time third. And that is engineers that he worked with directly for all the years in the past and did so well with at ECR are no longer engineering his car. So I'm not saying that they don't all, all the engineers don't talk and there isn't a lack of great setup information that uh, again, it's not like the lights have been turned off totally, but let's just be honest here and say that if we're talking about the, uh, what is it? the number 33 car when Ed drives it and the number 16 car when Simona is in it with Peretta Autosport uh, as a combination, the 33 slash 16 car in terms of on track performance has been drastically underwhelming. Is this a blame game? No, it's not meant to be a blame game. The same topic that we discuss somewhat frequently of talent, who's available, race engineers, a support engineer, sim and damper engineer, whatever. Everybody that I speak with, <laughs> seemingly everybody that I speak with, whether it's drivers or managers or owner, hey, do you know anybody? Who do you know? What do you heard? Like the the standing, hey, could you let me know if you hear of, of any engineers uh, that are available anywhere? right? IMSA, uh, wherever who might want to come do this. It's, it's a long group text of like, Hey everybody, I heard so-and-so like, I just did that yesterday, uh, with one engineer who I understand is going to be, uh, moving on from the, uh, the, the car that they're currently engineering and very likely the team. Um, there's not a lot there to go out and get where you go, oh, that person's a badass, proven, front-runner, racing engineer. I just would say this is something where we have to look at Ed and Simona. I realize she's coming back, and she's been a little, you know, been a little cold and had to get back up to speed. Uh, I've seen Simona race since her junior open-wheel days, and that woman... <laughs> that woman's a badass and I haven't seen that badass so far in her return to IndyCar and 
that tells me that it's not her. And when you look at someone like Ed, who is a beast, who was just in a pure state of race-long misery at Gateway, Ed didn't forget how to drive an Indy car on an oval. Ed hasn't forgotten how to call for good setup changes. There's just something that was off there. And granted, the whole team, I should say the whole team, Renus uh, wasn't having a great race and he didn't last very long. Connor uh, was doing better than those two, but obviously things went a little bit sideways towards the end. But yeah, um, I think Ed continues. I hope Ed continues. I've heard Ed's continuing. I don't know if it's someone from Formula One. I don't know if it's someone from NASCAR. I don't know if it's someone from snowmobile racing. But something's got to improve because it's painful to watch someone as good as Ed and as good as Simona just absolutely nowhere. Um... Ed George, you ask who picks the in-car cameras? I have no idea. I feel like I did, but I don't. Um, SRT Nick 12. He said, J Fry recently said that a new chassis isn't likely to arrive until 2028. What is your, what is your reaction to that? Is it too little, too late? Yeah, I mean... It doesn't surprise me for one main reason. And it's a little bit different than the previous reasons I've given, where I've said over and over again, we don't know when the new chassis is going to arrive. It's not going to be 24. I doubt it's going to be 25. Is it going to be 26? I don't know. Could it be 27? Again, who knows? Is it going to be 28? Does it come beforehand? I don't know. It's not just the costs of having to buy new cars and that times four, eight, or however many, that being a significant investment required uh, by the teams. Um, budgets in general have gone up, and a lot of it's due to the restriction in testing, on-track testing. The, the restrictions in on-track testing has been done to try and reduce costs. Hey, uh, we don't want, if you don't run as many miles, you don't have to fly to as many tracks and send as many people here or there and put as much wear and tear on the cars. That's a way to save money. In theory, yes. And then technology said, oh, we've got other ideas. What if we allow you to do massive simulation-based testing, simulator, driver-in-the-loop-based testing, uh, all kinds of off-track testing to try and fill in the void for the comparative shortage of test days that y'all once had. The money's going to get spent. So you might say, well, what if they just said, okay, we can go back to have a bunch of on-track test days each year. Teams would do that, plus all the things they're currently doing and have invested in off the track. So this is, I don't know if it's critical today, but I think it's something IndyCar might need to look into as Formula One has looked into in terms of curbing some things. You get so many hours of this type of computing done for this type of off-track testing and so on and so forth. Budgets are just, they're going up. Plus, circling back to the personnel thing, I was having this conversation with a friend in the paddock today. 
and it's not a new one. I feel like I've mentioned this a couple times this year, uh, if not last year. With the dire lack of qualified people, oh boy, a lot of money is being thrown around. And so <laughs> if I was smart and my wife agreed, uh, we would pack up and move to Indianapolis. I would brush up on all of my race engineering uh data analysis, you name it, stuff that I haven't done in IndyCar in 20 years, and get back up to speed, and I would probably be able to draw a salary from IndyCar teams that was is ridiculous. And that's because teams are throwing a lot of money at good people, decent people, great people are getting super paid like there is a real outlay of cash in order to get people if not overpaying just it's supply and demand some other factors as well to drive up costs but these are two of the the bigger ones that get cited so if you're looking at teams now needing to spend an extra one or two million dollars a year if the annual average budget is creeping up by 20%. Hey, where does the money come in to get a new car? So I can see that being part of the, let's kick the, uh, let's kick the can further down the road. Um, I have a Delarty W12 related feature that I hope to do during the off season. Cause it's going to take days to uh, research and put together somewhat along this line that I think might be amusing, but yeah, uh, I don't know if it's going to be 28. I don't know if it's going to be 26. Um, I don't know if it's going to be 2030. I truly don't. Um, once we get the new hybrid powertrain into the DW 12, and once some of the new things that are going to be made, to go onto the car to compensate for this extra weight and power. We're going to have a better idea of whether that far-reaching goal, right? We're, what, now celebrating. Is it 10 years, 10 seasons, 11 seasons? I always get it mixed up. I'm going to count here, and I apologize, but it's just revealing my level of idiocy. 12, 13, 14. 11th season of use with the DW12. And we're looking at, what, another seven? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Our little little baby, our little DW12 is going to be able to vote, uh, buy alcohol in many states, um, join the military, you imagine and i might be off by a year who knows if my using my fingers to count just now even came up with the right answer probably didn't but still you imagine if we get to almost 18 years and 18 17 whatever the number is who knows like i said it could come a little earlier a little later but in general an 18 year deployment never seen anything like it in motor racing ever 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 like you look at monster trucks 
monster jam. And you look at, you know, a Bigfoot chassis from 1998 or something like that. And you look at a new Bigfoot and you go, oh my gosh, this is like spaceship technology today compared to what they had 20 years ago, 18 years ago. Like, we're freaking IndyCar. But yeah, anyways, uh, Nick. <sighs> yeah, I'm just going to. If I had a 40, I'd pour it out just for us. Um, why don't we close with this? Justin Lee, by the way, you, you're asking about uh, is there an East Coast equivalent of the Rolex reunion. There's some, not as big, but there's some really cool stuff at Road America, Road Atlanta, VIR, I believe, Sebring and Daytona all have uh, vintage events, some of them bigger than others. But um, look up. And I don't know their specific URLs, but HSRSVRA, uh, what, HMSA. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there's a number of, of pretty cool and established vintage motor racing organizations that compete um, Midwest, South, East Coast. Some of them venture out here a little bit. Um, there's some more provincial or regional ones. Uh, that don't go beyond, you know, that, that don't get out of the Pacific Northwest, for example, and such. But yeah, I think East Coast, um, it might even just be easier to go to some of your favorite tracks, whatever those road courses might be. Just go to their websites and look at their calendars. Pretty much guarantee you're going to find one, two, or three vintage events per year. Like I said, they might not all be four to 500 entries like we have uh, at Monterey, but uh, there's cool stuff for sure. But the last one here, from our pal JJ Gertler it says Marshall if Alex Pelo really wants to get out of his contract with Ganassi I bet ESPN the magazine would be willing to do another body issue oh JJ I love you <laughs> let's say Pelo somehow lands at, at McLaren uh, in a timely fashion and doesn't like it. Does he do that? Does he pull the hinge card and, uh, you know, ass cheeks and all spread across his whatever, uh, let folks see his arrow on the, uh, the arrow Indy car. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, I had forgotten about that one as, as a getting out of things. Uh, he's currently trying to get out of things at Ganassi and get into things at McLaren, but yeah, um, you're such a ding-a-ling all right friends thank you i appreciate you uh i don't know it's too almost too late in the week to have a guest on i don't know do i try and just uh record the hashtag racing family show for monday where we had devlin de francesco and david malukas on and had some fun do i go and try and turn that into a podcast maybe i will uh i'm gonna record Weekend Sports Cars with our man, Graham Goodwin, uh, here, ASAP. And then I do have some of those podcasts from Monterey that I hope to get done as I'm burping, hiccups. I don't know what I got going on here, but I got something. So thanks again to you, Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. We'll speak to you soon. <laughs>